the underpinning structure of the business is its processes. And if you can make improvements to those or, you know, automate them or make them more efficient, then for me, the, the storyline there is you're leveraging out high double digit savings. Welcome to Process Pioneers, the show that takes a deep dive into the minds of decision makers, key influencers and process experts who are pioneering the world of everything process. Well, welcome to another episode of Process Pioneers. Uh, today I have the absolute privilege of sitting down with Ben Hugenboom. Uh, he is a process CX architect, has worked in many different verticals, including energy, telco, finance, and different various government departments. Uh, so Ben, uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks, Daniel. So to start off with, what I might do is, is um, that was obviously a very brief overview and introduction, but I might pass the ball to you to give us more of a comprehensive overview of, of your background. And, and maybe you can start off with the, where that interest for uh, the business process management world, I guess, first came from. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm a bit of a, a glutton for either punishment or variety. So uh, my, my career has been spent dipping through lots of different verticals um, from operations and, and customer service through to enabling services, quality, L&D, risk uh, and the like. Uh, and then sort of dabbling into management consulting, which obviously, uh, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a, a doctorship where you get in there and fix businesses problems. So you get yeah, sort of thrown at uh, many different areas of the business and trying to figure out what's going on. But, right. um, you know, recently I found myself uh, specializing in uh, bid management. So that's kind of like building an entire company from the ground up across all verticals uh, and sort of management consulting and CX. Um, and obviously, you know, the best friend to customer experience is process uh, and processes yes. that work uh, right. that are low friction and, and get the job done. So uh, it sort of brings it all together. Um, but it's been really interesting to sort of play in all those verticals. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, now talk to us a little bit about, I guess, cust the customer experience and, and how processes, I guess, the difference between internal processes and, and processes that are focused on the customer. Because obviously, internally, uh, you have an understanding of um, what, what, what the process, what process, um, uh, what the process being done is like, um, except for the customer. Um, how do you get that understanding of the customer journey and the experience that they have when obviously you're, you're coming at it from a customer lens, so to speak? Sure. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, all processes support businesses to do their business. Yeah. Uh, and to a degree, depending on how you look at it, all processes, I guess, cost uh, the company effort, energy and money. Um, but they also cost customers and their employees effort and energy as well. So, right. you know, the distinction for internal processes is just that your employees are eventually the customer of that. Uh, and it becomes a, a, a sort of a ROI or an investment decision around whether you uh, invest in automation um, or whether you get people to do uh, those tasks and whether they're rote or, or sort of you know, repetitive. Um, but obviously then you've got your external um, processes. And, you know, for me, the overriding factor around good process design and CX is that customer time and the, the, the touch points that you make them interact in to get the job done, that's the sacred cow. So every wow. piece of energy and effort and information and contact, and then the duration and the heaviness of that, 
that, that is the sacred cow. And every you know inch of that effort, you have to make sure you've optimized your processes and it's the, the least possible. Um, so again, it comes back to whether you invest in more sophisticated solutions. But at the end of the day, the quality of a process, the crispness of it, the repetitiveness of it to, or how it can feed other processes, that's where you started to get into brilliant process design. And with that comes great customer experience. Right, right. And I'd imagine that's a fairly easy pitch to senior management because you can directly correlate to, well, how's that going to drive further revenue? Look, it's a really interesting question, and I think uh, process and CX together are appreciated, but they're probably undervalued. So, um, again, if you look at the crazy times we're in with COVID, uh, you know, businesses are struggling, uh, and and sometimes the first lever that's pulled is, uh, do I need to let people go, or do I need to retreat from a market, or, or whatever it may be? Uh, and you know, if companies can realise a five, ten, fifteen percent saving, or whatever it may be, um, they might feel like they're in a better position. But I challenge every executive, particularly um, CFOs who might only look at a balance sheet or so on, think about the amount of effort both for your people and your customers and the money that you're throwing at your processes because no one has an origami department. So no one's coming in a folding paper. They're all coming in and using a system. They're using an array of processes. Uh, it takes time. They do it often. So, you know, the, the underpinning structure of a business is its processes. Uh, and if you can make improvements to those or, you know, automate them or make them more efficient, then for me, the, the storyline there is you're leveraging out, you know, high double digit. Um, savings. Right. And for me, it's not a story around then letting swaths of people go. It's about liberating that IP in your workforce. You know, how many times do we all think, gosh, we've got no time to innovate products or gosh, I wish we had the time to do X. I want companies to think about great process design and liberate that uh, capacity in their business and become the next Google in their industry or whatever it right. may be. Right, right. Now, obviously, you talked about how we can get, um, how you would approach, I guess, senior management, the value in it for them. But talk to us a bit about getting buy-in from the, the general employee, the one that's actually going to be looking at the processes and, and implementing or carrying out. Now, now obviously, I'm not, I'm not talking about the, the customers here. I'm talking more about the internal employees. But how, how do you get that buy-in from them where sometimes when you are trying to introduce something new to an organisation that maybe has, doesn't have a BPM framework in place, um, I'd, I'd imagine that there could be that resistance to adopting something new. Yeah, look, I think you start with the, uh, the opportunities or the concept of uh, improving your processes to slay the wicked dragons that annoy you every day. Right. So employees don't like to come into work and feel like they've got, you know, rickety old processes that are held together by bubble gums and band-aids. Uh, and chances are there's those processes that exist in every organisation. So that's the first part of the conversation is how do we get these out of your way so that you can do more fun, intelligent and complex work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can't, you know, there's never any resistance to that because everyone's like, thank you. Finally, you're here. I think then the next piece of that dynamic, Daniel, is I, I truly believe that almost every employee cares about their customer and cares about right. the experience of their customer. So anything we can do to reduce effort and friction and delight customers and make it simpler and whatever the dimensions are, employees are on the ride, yeah? The yeah, last yeah. part is how do you pick where you put your energy? Because, you know, at the end of the day, organisations can't fix everything at once. 
and nor should it. So the conversation then becomes around how do we understand ROI? How do we calculate it? So which processes are we going to improve? Which processes have the highest volume or have the biggest point of friction? Or if it's a people-oriented aspect, which processes annoy our people or our customers the most, even if they're not used often? And then right. what will that do for our organisation? Will it create more loyalty with customers? Will they spend more? Will they stay? Will they churn less, etc.? Will it mean you know just less active time for our people? Will we leverage some form of efficiency? And that really becomes your ROI dynamic. And that's what we should be taking back to executives to say beyond obviously the great um, feel good factor of making people happier. There is a real material and tangible impact to the balance sheet here. And we should do this. Right, right. Now, for some organisations that they document their, uh, their processes down um, and maybe they, when they do document it down, they, they do think about like what's the, the most optimum um, way, uh, the most efficient process um, for, for whatever they're working on. But maybe they, um, in whatever solution, whether it's, it's in a software or it's on paper or something, wherever it's documented down, um, maybe it, it sits there and it collects dust and there isn't that effort to i guess continue continually improve and obviously you've got the incremental improvement and then you've got the radical innovation where uh, you can take a a very long say let's say 28 day process and cut it down to a 23 day process or something like that sure um, but talk to us a bit about i guess the in the incremental um, improvements and, and where that plays a part and then the radical innovation and, and where that fits into the picture. Yeah, sure. Well, to the first piece, I mean, uh, you know, I think all companies would acknowledge that uh, there's very few that have all of their processes understood and documented. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think it, it doesn't matter how big the organisation is or how long its legacy is or how much money it has to throw at it. Um, I dare say, and these are made up statistics, but, you know, at least half of processes are tribal knowledge. So, yeah. you know, as a, as a process or a CX professional, you're always fighting the battle around tribal knowledge um, right. and trying to get the process and the variance and, and all that stuff defined. And so I think, you know, you, you're not going to be able to, again, take an imprint of the entire business and every process continually. And that's where people go, well, it's too hard sometimes. Um, the battle's already lost. So I think uh, the, the start of this equation is really pragmatically understanding which processes, again, you know, do we have to have a control of? They pay the highest dividend. You know, clearly every company is going to really focus in on its acquisition process because that's how it fuels its organisation. But equally, there's going to be some really critical service processes that absolutely have to be understood back to front and right, right through to the end of the value chain when you're offboarding or fulfilling or updating or whatever it may be. But I recommend organisations at least have a understanding of their entire process architecture and have some form of, you know, whether it's categorization or prioritization to really understand what do I get my biggest bang for, which processes are really, you know, benign and quite boring, but have a, a big compliance impact or some sort of market factor uh, and start to really drill into those. And, you know, obviously, if you've, you've, if you've been involved in those processes for a long time, then you're doing incremental improvement. But if those right. processes haven't been touched for a very long time and they've got a lot of legacy in them, they might have outdated approaches or this we do it this way because Bob wanted us to do it that way 10 years ago, then you probably <laughs> are going to have to do 
do some revolutionary design. But again, if you've made a great business case inside your business to say, hey, these are the processes we have to rally behind, we understand them, we know how often we use them, and we know the commercial customer and employee return of those processes, we have a mandate now. And if you've got that mandate, then you'll get the investment to improve them. Right, right. Now, for someone that's listening right now, that there's going to be a, a diverse range of people that, that listen to this interview, that some people, that we might have senior management, we might have people that are within organisations that are process champions themselves, but um, the they're, they're organisation they, they're in doesn't have any BPM framework or anything like that. But talk to us a bit, a bit about um, what, what are the first steps an organisation should take when, when, I guess, trying to tackle, um, I guess, a BPM mindset or, or methodology for their organisation? You've obviously got enterprise architecture that takes more of a, that a high level sort of strategic overview, I guess you could say. And then in some organisations, they're, they're purely just doing BPM on a, on a project to project basis. But outside of a project, outside of a, a beginning and an end, that there isn't any enterprise-wide work being done. So, so talk to us a bit about, I guess, getting started uh, in the space. Sure. Well, the first thing is, I mean, if, if this is directed to the people who are trying to start the movement, so if they're going to be the first people dancing on the hill and people laughing at them until they realise that person's cool and they want to go and dance with them, then I would say to you guys, don't give up but you're going to have to understand what it is you're trying to deliver for the organization. And you're going to have to be able to articulate that to people who might not think it's as important as you do. So I would say, start with a crisp, pragmatic, pithy understanding of what the mission is. And then your job is to go out and convince people to come on board. Because mm -hmm. even though it might be a no-brainer to you, chances are everyone else in their day-to-day -day life and their day-to-day -day job thinks what they're doing already is really important. And perhaps tinkering with how that works is kind of down the bottom of the list. But again, I'm a passionate believer that, you know, across every business function, every vertical, you know, improving and optimising those processes is ultimately one of the biggest opportunities a company will have to make itself more profitable, you know, more aligned to its customers and be able to withstand crazy times like we're in now. So, you know, you've got to start with a plan and a mission and be able to convince people to come on board. The next piece is, like I said, having that pragmatism around how you're going to actually execute that. And to be honest with you, I'm a sort of a no-nonsense kind of guy. I'd be having very frank conversations with our executives to say, do you have the commitment and the willpower to see this through? Because right. this might feel exciting today and it might, you know, you might get behind this prospect of making us better and sharper and leaner and more customer oriented. But when I'm annoying you for resources or annoying you for decisions or whatever it may be in six or 12 months time, are you going to lose the patience? Are you going to lose the commitment? Because organizations that set off on these big programs and don't see them through, they create a different legacy within their business and they create a right. culture of not finishing what it started and right. that becomes a little bit um, of an underlying dimension to their business and the next yeah. time you try and rally that support and get people excited they kind of brush it off and say it's just another fad and it won't happen so yes. I think you know the executive in an organization you know they have a responsibility to really get behind it and sponsor it but like I said back to the people you asked me to speak to unless you can do a great job of influencing and explaining what that will look like and what will get at the end of it, you can't expect them to sustain that passion. 
Mm-hmm. Great, great. And um, that kind of leads into my next question, talking a bit about um, you've obviously worked in a number of different verticals like energy, telco, finance, um, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen um, it, uh, I guess, BPM work done well, and I'm sure yep. you've seen it not done well. And, and so what would you say are, the, are those special ingredients that sort of like I'd imagine that it isn't it isn't just the one key ingredient. I'd, I'd imagine there's a number of things that need to come together to make sure that, um, I guess, it's it's effectively outworked. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, I think that the battle is around, the first battle is around tribal knowledge. So depending on who, uh, in which area of the business you sit down to harvest this, harvest this information from, um, are you just getting that one approach to it uh, and does it mean that there's 25 different approaches based on 25 different people uh, and how they apply their tribal knowledge so right. really be careful around variance and I think a lot of professionals struggle to get sort of an impartial objective baseline of what's really happening in the business or what it should be um, but right. do your best I think the next piece is around uh, we seem to in BPMN or BPM sorry um, focus on the happy path so we understand our processes, but we understand them when they work well. Uh, and then again, it's that effort and energy piece of when things fall off the tracks, they fall off the tracks in 25 different ways. And that's very, you know, time consuming to get under the hood of, but mm-hmm. I'd actually encourage that organizations shift their focus away from, or, or just a myopic focus on uh, what are my processes and how do they work? And let's optimize when they go well, really understanding what goes wrong. How do I plug it? How do I use systems and automate and, and get behind those and kill them and knock them off one by one? one because I guarantee you at the end of the day your happy path customers even if they're experiencing a process it's a bit longer and probably not that great they're probably going to stay with you but it's the ones that fall down the 25 rabbit holes in a process and get burnt by them they're the ones that are going to tell their 10 friends they're the ones that are going to go off to another organization and they're the ones that are going to take their dollars with them so I really think as, as process experts we've got to challenge ourselves and challenge our stakeholders to really get under the web of that Right, right, right. And uh, when you're when you're just um, I guess discovering the processes within an organisation, I'm sure you've been you've facilitated or maybe been part of a number of different discovery sessions. What does that look like? And I guess what what needs to be done so that um, I guess you get you achieve the outcome that you you um. Are, are intending to achieve. Sure. I mean, like anything, you always start with an as-is sort of diagnostic. What's there? What can I grab? What's already mapped? What do we know? What's What do the reports tell us? If I need quanti- quantitative data around what's causing us pain or not, you go out and you grab all of that. Um, chances are half of it might be calculated incorrectly or out of date or whatever it may be, but mind no. the goal. Definitely find what you feel is, you know, relatively in shape and relatively up to date and definitely use that as a as a precursor but you know I think it really does involve sitting down with the people in the trenches that do the processes day to day and again really making sure that you get recommendations from whomever is in that department around who are the best people to speak to who knows it verbatim Um, and for me it's a conversation so sitting down and saying step by step let's walk through this I think some of the hygiene factors that we might um, miss along the way is like I said what are the key decision points how long do these steps take what's the active time going on here on average 
leverage um, and not just from an internal perspective, but what are we sending our customers off to do? Um, right. Where do we have, you know, um, sign off points that may be superfluous? Where do we tick things or grab things? Because again, it feeds some sort of bespoke report that one person in the organization is passionate about. No one else is, you know, there's a, there's a big piece in what we do. And when you're sitting down with someone around, why do we do this? Um, and where did it come from? Uh, mm -hmm. And often you can go out into an organization and agitate for change and say, mm -hmm. this might be great for this one product, but you know, we're doing it a million times a year. We're running this process a million times. We're grabbing this piece of information for a product we sell 10 times a year. So right. ultimately that ROI to the business isn't there. So you've got to work with people who do this in the trenches and really just try and unpack exactly what's going on. And again, they're the people that are going to see it when it falls off the tracks because they're probably going to have to deal with the disgruntled internal employee or the customer and talking through, well, why does that happen and how are you able to solve that? Where are the root causes for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I would say one of the, the hot topics at the moment, and I'm sure has been for a couple of years now, um, is process automation. You you've touched on that a couple of times now, but um, some organisations might dive into it um, wanting just let's automate everything. Like automation sounds great. If we can have robots doing all of the work and that obviously frees up a lot of time, effort, energy and resources. But talk to me a little bit about, I guess, the, the strategy that has to go into automating a process. Like when is the best time and, and, and what are some mistakes that an, organiser, an organization might, might make when diving into process automation? Well, it's, it's part of um, recent conversations and, and recent context. So um, at the end of the day, common sense, right? So don't, don't let smart people overcomplicate this um, and don't let sort of confirmation bias or bias take this in a direction that it doesn't need to go. So at the end of the day, you've got to look at opportunity to automate um, and versus the opportunity to have a human being do it. And intrinsically, right. if a human being can make a better decision or um, human decisions deliver a better outcome for the customer or the organization, don't automate it keep getting people to do it. We don't need to automate everything. But by, you know, by rule of virtue, if something is repetitive, if something is not contextual, if something is rules-based, um, then it's a prime candidate for automation and we should pursue that. It then comes back to how much is that going to cost and how much effort do we have to throw at doing that? Because again, if you look at processes, if it's a process you're trying to automate and you only use it 10 times a month, but it's going to cost a six-figure sum or whatever it may be to get it automated, you walk away from those things, but you have that conversation with your stakeholder. So you need to know that information you need to know how often it's used and you need to know the ROI of investing in that automation conversely right. if we're you know spending a big pile of cash to automate uh, you know a big chunk of a process and we do that process a million times a year then don't let anyone get in your way or don't let anyone poo-poo your idea to have that automated fight that good fight seek out the people that you think will support that make sure that you're able to back that up with those facts and evidence and get it automated. And chances are the people who are doing that process are not going to feel like they're losing anything. Chances are the people who are ticking that box and, you know, clicking that next cell or whatever it may be would love to have it gone. So I right. think, again, it's just pragmatism. Like I, I actually don't feel the debate around manual versus automated is actually that complicated if you understand the process and how often it's used and what you get from that manual activity. 
Right, right. Now, you mentioned earlier about obviously the current climate we're sitting in, uh, going through coronavirus, and, and obviously it's disrupting a lot of industries and a lot of organisations. For some organisations, it's wiped them out, and um, a lot of businesses are struggling, and for some organisations, they're actually thriving in the, in the current time. But And, and I guess overall, it's, it's forcing organisations to... Um, I guess, learn to quickly adapt. Like a lot of their workforce is now working from home, working from remote offices. And, and we have some organisation that all of a sudden uh, the senior management's going, hang on a second, what is, what's everyone doing? Mm. Like I can, I can no longer work through, walk through the office space anymore and quickly have a, a good grid for what's going on and which processes are being done and, and who's following what. So talk to us a little bit about how BPM um, can play an important role, I guess, through what we're going through at the moment. Well, yeah, so the visibility piece is difficult for everyone, you know, um, uh, and, and, you know, you, you can resolve that um, in the day-to-day, -day, but from a process perspective, the visibility is gone, right? Well, I think I'd take a different lens to this. I would say that um, if you have been an organisation that has, uh, you know, taken every effort to understand the processes that make the most difference to you, if you've gone into COVID, with a waste-free, efficient, simple, uh, as much as possible set of processes, then I imagine you're weathering this storm better than anyone else, right? But if you've right. gone into this uh, as an organisation that hasn't invested in business processes, um, is carrying a lot of waste that you probably don't see every day because things are ticking over and, you know, before all of this crisis, the margins were getting made and the sales figures were getting hit, etc. then, you know, whether you realise it or not, you actually are feeling a lot of pain. So I think it comes back to my original point is organisations tend to see these crises and say, okay, we have to make some cuts and we have to, you know, let go of people and all sorts of stuff like that or cancel travel or, you know, don't do... Whereas, you know, if you look at one of the biggest... For every organisation, the biggest cross-driver in every organisation is its people. Yeah, because they're either providing expertise and that's a whole different thing or they're doing activity. If they're doing right. activity, then they're using processes. So for me, I really want to elevate the common sense core of process optimization because it has the opportunity to be one of the biggest um, game changes in how an organization goes about its business. And the other piece here is too, like I said, this is not about getting rid of people because you've automated. This is about having efficient and lean business that's resilient to things like COVID. But also you can take that investment and reinvest it in your people or your customers or your product. If you right. can achieve a high quality product equal to your competitors, but your processes are so optimized that your cost base is significantly different. Well, you know, it's only green side for you. You can have mm -hmm. a product in a great product in the market that does everything everyone else does. It's at a price that no one can beat. Your employees are happy and your customers are satisfied. That really is the utopia that we're shooting for. And I don't right. think COVID gets in the way of that. I think COVID is actually an opportunity for us to go, we have to hit the reset button. How are we going to do that? And let's really come out of this stronger than ever. Yeah. Okay. Great. And now, obviously, um, as we move forward, um, I mean, over the last twenty years, even there's obviously been constant improvements to the BPM landscape uh, in the form of different software solutions. I guess, like you've got process automation, RPA, you've got process mining now, different things like that. What does the future look like for BPM? Yeah. Look, I think um, RPA is something that is um, mind-bogglingly underused. Uh, you know, again, that's that's a, a throwing robots at 
you know, um, repetitive and menial tasks that people don't want to do anyway. Um, I really feel that in the next sort of five years, that's going to have its big aha moment. You certainly speak to a lot of professionals who know exactly what it is, but in the list of priorities, they've gone, I'll get to that some other day. So I think RPA is going to continue to have its sunshine moment. For me, I think the future of BPN is around um, integrating your process knowledge and your process modelling and, um, you know, your, your appreciation of variance and all that stuff and actually getting it integrated into core information systems so that you can design workflows and intuitively those workflows can actually change the behavior of a core information system because at right. the end of the day they're the two big bits that that mean a, a business isn't an origami department yeah so i think you know that those solutions aren't matured and you know there's certain big players that have given it a salute but it doesn't really work in reality i think you're right. going to see in the next decade that some innovative technology is going to come and make that happen and that's going to uh, enable organizations to be a bit more self-serve so they don't mm -hmm. have to know how to code a customer information system but blimey they can actually change the way their people you do it and, and, and how they interact with it and for that to directly influence the behaviour of that system, that's going to be the next sort of evolutionary step in my view. Right, right. Now, for someone listening right now, whether they are on that sort of exact level or, or um, lower down um, in, in the org chart, talk to us a bit about um, that they, they've been gleaning a lot from what you've been saying. Um, maybe maybe the, the process customer experience sort of like journey um, isn't, very developed in their organization where would you point the, where, where would you point them to next if they want to continue that learning that they, they know that that's a weak point in their organization they want to learn more about the the, the, the process of the, the of the customer journey experience where would you direct them Look, it's an excellent question and I guess uh, CX doesn't have um, uh, a common rally point in Australia um, like it does uh, elsewhere. So the first tip is they can reach out to me, happy to field a call, an email, have a coffee when we're all back together. But I think um, obviously if you've got CX people in your organisation, reach out to them. If, if it's something that you've been meaning to get on top of, go and talk to the people in your business that are passionate about it and are there to help right. with that. Right. Um, but clearly, you know, you, you've got great organisations like um, CEB, which uh, was recently brought out, but Forrester and the rest, they will start to give you, I guess, at least a framework to work within around what it is, um, you know, what journeys and uh, taking a customer view into your organisation looks like. Uh, and it will start to, I guess, anchor you to some actual commercial disciplines that it influences. So for me, Daniel, one of the things as well is I think um, uh, customer experience in organisations can get a reputation for being the fluffy stuff. So it can be seen as, you know, making people feel good. And yes, we should try and make customers feel good. But, you know, I'm running a very important operational business over here and we've got to get the job done. And I'd like to challenge that because at the end of the day, uh, customer experience is, is part of your profit center. Not only does it make customers feel good and you're less frictional and they want to stay with you, all of that comes with intrinsic commercial value to your organization. So I challenge executives when they're out there trying to understand CX more to challenge any of those biases because, right. you know, don't just look at sales figures and the effectiveness of a product. You know, I understand mm. that that is a big part of your business, but customers staying with you and spending more and telling other people to come to you is a huge part of your success. So there is a massive um, commercial impact around CX and process design. 
Right, right. Well, obviously, in um, in half an hour, we can only fit um, so much in. It's it feels like the time's just rocketed past. But um, uh, Ben, I just want to thank you so much for for joining me today. I'm sure that when we do release this, like the the audience, whether they're listening to it in the on the podcast or on LinkedIn or YouTube, wherever it is, I'm sure they're going to glean a lot of value um, from it. So I just want to thank you for for sitting here and, and sharing your knowledge with me. My pleasure, Daniel, and thanks for uh, exposing uh, this part of our everyday life. I think a lot of people get a lot of value out of it, so well done.